When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Before we move on any further, we're going to consider briefly these last two words of our Savior. Consider what it means when he says, I am thirsty and it is finished. About four months ago, my, my wife and I, really me, I guess I could say, I started building my wife a website for the business that she's trying to start. And um, I don't know how much you know, you know about web development and building things, websites, but um, it took about maybe a day give or take, a little bit longer than that to get the, the initial site up and launched, coding and all the connections between the databases and everything on the backside. That was pretty good. Um, but then over the next, say, month after that, about every once a week, maybe twice a week, I'd spend an hour and move some content around, move some images around, resize things, you know, make it work a little bit more efficiently. Then at, after about two months or so of, of doing that, then it was realized, well, there's some fairly significant parts of the site that need to get restructured to, to work differently. And so we moved parts around and changed the functionality of different elements. Fine. That took a couple more hours. Then it got, we paused on it. I paused on it for about a month, let it sit there. And then about a week ago, I was thinking about it and looking at it. And we were discussing how the, the business was going to go forward in the next step. And I said, I think I need to rebuild the whole thing. It's not going to quite do what we need to do. So we need to move on to phase two and start the next section of it. Never done. That's how a lot of projects work, right? Um, not building projects, thankfully. Most of the time, building projects, you get to start. But there's a lot of projects in life where there's, there's no sense of completion. They never come to fruition. There is, there is just a, a constant sense of emptiness. There is the work to keep doing. There is a weight. And there's no weightlessness. Now, there are there have been times in my life where I've definitely known the, the weightlessness, the sense of completion, the, the fulfillment sense. And that what's happened, for example, when I, I came back from China, I spent, you know, about two months transitioning from overseas to here. And two months, man, without a, a job that I had to do every day, uh, just had to find a place for the family to live. And there was no even serious stress about parenting and, and raising the kids. You know, that was, it was a free and easygoing time. There was a sense of weightlessness because everything had come to a fruition, a completeness about it all. Uh, moving from Minnesota to here as well, there was this strong sense of, for about three months of Wow, I just don't have a lot of things to do. You know, even starting here at Peace, everything was new, and I got to spend the better part of two months saying, I don't know, do I need to do that? Oh, okay, if you say so. You know, it was, there was a time of, of release when everything had been brought to completion. And, and maybe you get to experience that. I get to experience that too every now and then on a, a weekly basis when I, I finish the sermon on a Saturday afternoon at noon or one o'clock and and I can think of, well, I could do this and I could do that, but none of that's that important. I can let it sit for a few days and just enjoy the next eight hours until I have to get to church. It's a completion. It's a sense that, that there is no more heavy weight weighing on my soul to get the next thing done. Do you know that? Do you know that, that sense of completion? The Lord has called us 
to be stewards of this world, which means that we always have tasks to do. There will always be tasks. It's called to, to care for the land and the country, which means we are going to be building and enlarging and expanding the kingdom of God constantly. And so whether that's our own personal lives and our jobs, our family lives, or our work together as a church, there's always going to be work to do. But today, God invites you to know a sense of completion, of weightlessness, freedom from the work beneath the work. It's Jesus. He's on the cross. He's been working for the last five or six hours. We've heard now all of the words that he has been saying to us, and now he says this word, I'm thirsty. And, and that's understandable, because one of the things that Good Friday tells us is that if we're going to fix this world, it's going to take a lot of work. And what happens when you work hard? You get thirsty, don't you? There was a lot of work, and all we have to do is look at Jesus' life to see how hard he worked but, but let me draw a comparison for you that helps us see it a little bit. You know, this week, one of the grand structures in the world, the Notre Dame Cathedral, burned down, and it was a, a tragedy. When it burned down, it didn't take very long before a couple people stepped forward, and they offered billions of dollars to, to rebuild that beautiful structure. And then, I don't know if you noticed, but as soon as somebody offered millions and billions of dollars to rebuild it, there were people who were crying foul and saying, we should give that money to the poor to care for the hungry and to feed the needy. And then some people went so far as to say, how dare they? Because look, I mean, look, if, if we actually in this world cared about the poor and the needy, think how quickly we could solve world poverty and hunger. And now compare that to Jesus in his life. Jesus, in his life, he cared for the poor and the needy. There's no doubt about that. He fed thousands numerous times. He was a doctor to the sick, and medical care in those days was hard to come by, and it was expensive. But Jesus didn't just care for the poor and the needy. He went beyond that. He, um, for example, he fought the very system that created the poor and the needy. On Monday of Holy Week, he went into the temple and he, he found all of the people who were using the temple to cheat and deceive the pilgrims that came from out of town. And he threw over all of the tables and threw over their carts so that they couldn't keep using that system to cheat the poor and the needy. Uh, another time, when, when a rich young man asked Jesus what he had to do to be saved, Jesus told him, well, you need to sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That's how hard Jesus worked to do the very things that we think are incredibly important, to care for the poor and the needy. He did a, a better job at it than we do, and still, what happened to him? He's dying on the cross. See, Good Friday tells you and me in an incredibly clear way just how hard we are going to have to work if you want to fix the problems, the brokenness, the failures of this world. And if you want to bury your head in the sand and just ignore it all, well, how can you do that? How can you just ignore all of the brokenness and the sin and the failures? But there is going to be an incredible amount of work involved to right the wrong, 
to make it all right. There's a weight to that. There's a weightiness because there's, there's a huge amount of work beneath the work. You know that? Do you feel that weight? Let me tell you uh, an example and see if this rings true for you. There was a man named Jim. Jim was a vice president for a large communication systems company. Jim worked, and yet he had this massive inferiority complex. And so he was, he compensated, he managed that by becoming a super overachiever. That's how he dealt with his inferiority complex. Now, Jim dealt with it that way, but he was still incredibly unhappy. He was constantly depressed. He felt no joy. He had no satisfaction. The weight of the work was killing him. And one time he was talking with his friend, Chris, and uh, he said this about himself. He said, I think the bottom line is, I hate myself. Why do you think you hate yourself, Chris asked. I don't know, really. I never feel that I do anything as well as it should be done. Never? Chris asked. Never, Jim answered, with a stiff back and crossed arms. Do you know what Jim is saying? Here's a man at the very top of his career, not just the pinnacle of his own career, but the pinnacle of his field. He has done everything, and yet he is saying, it doesn't matter how hard I work, I can't make things right. Isn't that a pressure that you and I feel, that there is an incredible pressure in this world to right the wrongs? And there is this burden to carry, to fix the problems, and yet we, we realize, have to realize, like Jim, that the burden is not out there. The problem is not with all the things out there. The burden is, is what comes up from within our own souls. There is a weight, a burden pressing on us from within saying, these things need to get fixed. This is not right. This is not the way the world is supposed to be. There shouldn't be this brokenness, this failure. There is a, an intense amount of work beneath all of the work that we do, pushing on our hearts. And that's why Jesus has to work so hard. How hard does he work? He says, I'm thirsty. Do you know what that means in, in biblical language? In the Bible, thirsty is, well, Psalm 42 says it probably best. Psalm 42 says, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with God? What is thirst in the Bible? In the Bible, thirst is a common metaphor for the agonizing spiritual emptiness. If you read Isaiah and Jeremiah and the Psalms, you'll see that thirst is the picture that the Bible uses when you are far from God and God is far from you. 
What's, what's it mean to be thirsty? See, the Bible is saying that there's a, a kind of thirst that you and I have that's bigger than just a thirst for physical water to keep us alive. There is a thirst that we must have, a water that must quench our souls or, or we'll die. And what is that thirst? If you and I, if we don't have our, our bucket, the bucket of our souls deep in the water of God then we're going to die of, of a thirst. If God's cause is not our cause, if God's love is not our love, then we will have no water to quench our souls. And what Jesus then is saying, well, when Jesus says here, I thirst, he's not talking about just physical thirst, is he? I mean, he's, he's gone through so much already. You, you know that, right? He's, he's gone through not just the beatings and the whippings, right? But start at the very beginning. You know what he's gone through? He went through the first beating, and before he even got to the first beating, they blindfolded him, and they, they beat him, and they said, prophesy to us. And then after that beating, they, they scourged him, which means they took a whip, right? And that had, uh, it was especially fierce, and they beat his back with it until it was um, so bad that he was going to fall over. And this whole time, as they did these things, they put a crown of thorns on him, they mocked him, and they, they clubbed him in his face. The whole time, he never cried out once. The Gospels make a very specific point to tell us that he never cried out once. He never said, ouch. He never said, I'm in pain. He never cried about it. And then now, all of a sudden here, he gets and he says, I'm thirsty. So do you think he's talking here about, about a physical thirst that finally, oh, the heat of the day caught up to him? No, not at all. In fact, it says that. He says, in order to fill scripture, fulfill Scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. What Scripture do you think he's fulfilling? Psalm 22 says, I'm poured out like water. My strength is dried up like a piece of earthenware in the furnace. My tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Does that sound like somebody who is thirsty? Yeah, it does. And do you know what the first line is? Because that's from Psalm 22, telling about thirst. The first line of Psalm 22 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, why is Jesus telling us about this thirst? What's he doing? He, he's not talking about the, the scourge, the whipping, the beatings, the clubbings, or anything else like that. Those things are all mosquito bites compared to what he is going through. When he tells us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's saying so much more. Anybody could get beaten and stabbed and, and hurt for you, and they've done that for you, haven't they? People have sacrificed themselves for you like that. They've taken that for you. What he's saying is, he's gone to a place where there is nothing to drink. He's gone to the place where God is not. He's gone to the, the room where God does not fit. He's gone to the, the space where there is so much emptiness and dullness and grayness and bitterness and resentment and anger and hatred that there is no space to fit God there. He's gone to the place where there is unquenchable thirst. There's a line in the song, The Impossible Dream, which maybe you know from either The Man of La Mancha or um, from Gomer Pyle. If you ever watched Gomer Pyle, right? The Impossible Dream. 
there's a line there that talks about what the ideal man would be like, and it says this, to fight for the right without question or pause, to be willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause. Isn't that great? What kind of a man would be willing to march into hell for a heavenly cause? Is there such a person? Sure there is. Just one though, right? Just one. One who would go into hell. See, on the cross, right, what has Jesus done? He's experienced eternal spiritual death. He's taken the firebomb, the holocaust of fire, as if God himself was not there and allowed it to explode within himself, and it has burned him up. So there is nothing. He's just filled with unquenchable thirst. In other words, he's saying, I marched into hell so you could go to the heavenly places. I went to the desert so that you could have the garden. I went to the place where there is no God so you could always have the God. And that's, that's a lot. Right? That's so much more than just knowing Jesus died for me. But that's what you have to know to understand those last words. It is finished. I love those words, it is finished. Great words, aren't they? That's the, the standard way that we translate, we understand this one Greek word, tetelestai. And to me, you know, when I just hear it's finished, I think of like a play, right? You get to the end of the play, the act is done. Oh, it's finished, it's over. Uh, but this word is so rich. It, it's so profound. It's so beautiful. It, it's the word that you would use if you had a huge project or a task. It's the word that you would use if you have a, like a mortgage or a major debt and you need to pay it off. It's the word that you would use if you've got a, an, an assignment for an army to go and carry out. And you would mark on then the end of the plans. When the plans are all done, you would stamp them and you would say, it is finished. When Jesus says here, you know, it's finished, he says, it is completely and utterly done. I've brought the project that was laid out from the very beginning all the way to the end. And what's finished? You know the words, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you know what that's saying about your work and mine, about our work, and about the work that is beneath our work, that major project of our life to make everything right? Jesus is saying, I came from the infinite heavens. I have come down all the way so that I could be this close to you, and I have done everything that needs to be done to make it all right. The work is all finished. Right? Religion tells us to get to work. But the gospel says it's all finished. And, and, and you can see this clearly if you know the great Buddha. The great Buddha, one of his, his last words were these. This is supposedly what the Buddha said. O monks, this is my advice to you. All things in the world are changeable. They're not lasting. So work hard to gain your salvation. But what were Jesus' last words? It's all completely and utterly done. Two very different men with very different last words. Religion tells you and I, get to work. The gospel says, receive the finished work. Religion, the, the, the obedience and rules will tell you and I, 
If you work hard, then maybe someday God will love you and accept you and you'll be right with Him. And the gospel says to us, received the finished work because it's all right. You're all good and right with God. It's all done. So you know what this means for our lives? Let me just give you one way. All right, I talk to a lot of people who, who either are becoming Christians or they're trying to, to grow in their life as Christians. And here's one of the things they'll say. They'll say, I've screwed up my life. I made a huge mess of my life, but now I've got the chance to get it right. Now I can be the father or the mother, the husband or the wife, the man or the woman that I really need to be. And, and that's fine, but you know that Christianity is so much more than just a second chance. I mean, there, it is a second chance, but it's so much more than that, right? Because so much of the time when people say that, they say, now I've got another chance to get it right. Now I've got another chance to prove that I am worth it. Jesus did not die on the cross so that you could prove that you're worth it. Jesus died on the cross to be your worthiness, Jesus did not die on the cross so you can take another race around the track of life and hopefully get it right this time. Jesus died on the cross so that you can have a crown. Jesus did not die on the cross so that maybe someday you could possibly get to heaven if it's good enough. Jesus died on the cross to throw the doors of heaven wide open. That's what it's finished means. He's done it all. And if for you saying, now's my chance to be a Christian, means now's my chance to really get my life right, then you need to know these words. It's finished. And you need to mark it finished. See, like I said, when the ancient world, when they took a, a bill, right, and the bill was paid, they marked it to telestai. If you took a mortgage out on your house and you need to pay the mortgage, they marked it to telestai. If the army got sent off to war and then they came back, the project was all done, mark it to telestai. It's finished. Each one of you, hopefully, in your service folder as you came in tonight, you got one of these cards maybe, and on the back, you can see there's some lines on it. There's spaces, and it's marked, it's finished. And if you'd like, I want to invite you to go home tonight and think about the projects in your life. Think about the work that is beneath your work. That is, think about the things that you've been doing to make the failures right, to fix all that's broken in your life. Think about the ways that you've made up for your inferiority or tried to push down your superiority so that maybe this time you can just possibly get it right. And write them down. And then mark it finished. Because that's what it is.